when it comes to the Catholic sex abuse crisis, the narrative that's been put forward that has been and is being still put forward is one of contrition and change. The church and its enablers and its people are so sorry and so upset and so bothered by what happened that they're doing anything and everything that they can to make sure that it doesn't happen again. All of which is great, which sounds great, which comes across very well, but the problem is the reality. What's going on here at St. Louis University what's been going on in Knoxville, Tennessee, the actions and inaction of Bishop Rick Sticka of Knoxville, the collusion and involvement of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and the question of what exactly has changed actually as the website and JD Flynn of Pillar Catholic have documented so well and so thoroughly the Diocese of Knoxville and Bishop Rick Sticka are in the middle of a horrific scandal a scandal that should shake the faith and confidence of every Catholic. In sum, what happened and what still is happening is that a certain seminarian named Wojciech Subcheck, and I use his name because he's been named in the lawsuit, He was thrown out of a seminary in Poland, allegedly because of sexual abuse, sexual abuse that he committed against other seminarians. He was then thrown out of another seminary, again because of alleged sexual abuse. Subject then was accepted on a provisional basis by Bishop Rick Sticka of the Diocese of Knoxville as a seminary candidate. And while working at the Knoxville Cathedral, I believe as an, as an acolyte, not as a formal seminarian at the time, he allegedly raped a member of the Knoxville Cathedral staff. Criminal charges were not filed against subject. However, a month ago, a civil lawsuit was filed against 
bishoprics thicka in the Diocese of Knoxville. Alleging that Sticka knew or should have known that Subcheck was a was a predator. That knowledge should have been obvious given that Subject had been thrown out of a a Jesuit seminary in Europe, Poland, I believe, in another seminary in the United States. Now the really the really horrifying thing about this story is that after he committed this alleged rape in Knoxville, attacking a member of the staff of the Cathedral of Knoxville, Subcheck was then placed in a seminary associated with the Diocese of Knoxville where he attacked at least one other person. So by this point, I've heard of allegations of five or six attacks of varying natures, including an alleged rape against this seminarian from the Diocese of Knoxville. And it gets worse. Instead of being expelled and returned to Poland, Bishop Ricksticka of the Diocese of Knoxville has instead hidden Wojciech Subcheck at St. Louis University. This is in collusion with, in cooperation with, the Jesuits of St. Louis University and the Archdiocese of St. Louis. The Archdiocese of St. Louis is harboring a multi-accused predator who keeps throwing out, uh, who keeps getting thrown out of seminaries because he keeps attacking people. And this person is so old and has made so little progress because he keeps getting thrown out of seminaries that he's in his mid-twenties and only has enough credits to be classified as a sophomore. We're not talking about a teenager. This is not an 18 or 19-year-old kid that we're talking about. This is a person, a man in his mid-twenties who's at St. Louis University in Midtown St. Louis. He's now in the middle of his second semester, recently reclassified from a freshman to a sophomore. And he's taken classes at St. Louis University, is being hidden and harbored by the Archdiocese of St. Louis in cooperation with the Diocese of Knoxville. The Jesuits at St. Louis University are complicit in this effort to hide the seminarian Wojciech Subcheck. 
and it's it's so stunning it's it's really hard to to think about and even to discuss it but what it does what the whole experience does is it gives the lie to all the talk about how much things have changed in the catholic church if a multi-accused predator a predator who seems compulsive in his willingness and need to attack his fellow seminarians cannot be run out of the priesthood at the first sign of the problem of a problem or the second sign of a problem or the third sign of a problem or the fourth sign of a problem by which time he's accumulated something like five or six alleged victims, then what exactly has changed in the Catholic Church in the 20 years since Spotlight, the Dallas Charter, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, those Estes Lux Mundi, and everything? My name is Chris O'Leary. I'm a survivor of the Catholic sex abuse crisis. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, at the Church of the Immaculata in Richmond Heights, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, right up the hill from the St. Louis Galleria Mall, if you know St. Louis, I was sexually exploited, abused, and assaulted, raped by a priest named Father Leroy Valentine. Exploitation and abuse, at least, that was witnessed, at least in part, by then Father and now Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Archbishop of New York. Father Dolan came to Immaculata in 1976, straight out of the seminary. My abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, came to Immaculata in 1977, straight out of the seminary. And Dolan and Valentine overlapped at Immaculata for a period of two years, from 1977 to 1979. And much of the abuse that Father Valentine perpetrated against me and countless others could be as many as a hundred guys at Immaculata alone was perpetrated in the rectory of the Church of the Immaculata in St. Louis the the same rectory that then Father now Cardinal Timothy Dolan shared with Father Leroy Valentine Valentine made surprisingly little effort to hide what he was doing from the other priests in the rectory, Monsignor Flavin and Father Dolan. Twenty years ago, my spotlight happened. On March 3rd, 2002, the New York Times published an article about the Catholic sex abuse crisis, basically their first response to the work, the 
Boston Globe had done in terms of investigating the Catholic sex abuse crisis. For some reason, the New York Times ended up looking at St. Louis, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and the Diocese of Belleville, which is just across the river from St. Louis. The article was entitled, Two Paths, No Easy Solution to Abusive Priests. And it named my favorite priest, one of my favorite people from my childhood, Father Leroy Valentine, as an abuser. So what I did at the request of the Archdiocese of St. Louis is I called in and the next day, I believe it was March 6, 2002, almost exactly 20 years ago, I was called back by then, by that time, Bishop Timothy Dolan, who was at that point an auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I told Dolan my story, my memories, you know, I'd gone to him for help trying to understand what I remembered. And basically what happened is Dolan told me nothing happened, that nothing could have happened, that it was impossible. Which is kind of strange because as I've since learned in the intervening 20 years, I wasn't the only person who came forward with a story about Father Valentine. I have a document that proves at least one other person came forward and I know have been contacted by at least one other person, a third person, who contacted then Bishop, now Cardinal Timothy Dolan in March 2002, right about, right about this time. I called in and talked to Dolan in early to mid-March 2002. The second person also contacted Dolan in early to mid-March 2002. And uh, this third person contacted Dolan at the end of March 2002, almost exactly, if not exactly, 20 years ago. The result of those three calls was that my abuser, Father Leroy Valentine, was forced to resign. And he did so 20 years ago. The Archdiocese of St. Louis basically cut him loose letting him live in a private residence for some number of years. I don't know for sure, but I've heard that Valentine ended up living with his mom for a couple of years. And the strange thing about that, that, you know, one of the difficult things is that despite the fact that Dolan told me nothing happened, and he that was then contacted by two other guys such that at the end of March 2002, Dolan had three allegations against Valentine in his pocket, enough to force Valentine to resign. Dolan had three allegations against Valentine in his pocket, enough to force Valentine to resign. Dolan never called me back to say, hey, Chris, you know how I told you nothing happened. Well, Valentine just resigned. And... You know, for whatever reason, I didn't, I didn't realize that, that Valentine had resigned. You know, I had, it was, you know, my friend who I had served for at Immaculata and knew well from Immaculata father, then Bishop Timothy Dolan told me nothing happened, as did a 
quote-unquote independent psychologist he referred me to who happen actually happened to be the assistance coordinator for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. She also gave me a clean bill of health, told me my memories didn't mean anything, said that I was just misinterpreting, quote, misinterpreting, unquote, her word, my memories about Father Valentine. So I just went on with my life. So I've been, you know, I went back to the Archdiocese of St. Louis in 2011 to try to get help, try to understand what was going on. Uh, went back to them again in 2013. They ended up permanently removing Valentine. Never did help me. Uh, I filed a lawsuit in 2015, which I had to settle out of court for $9,000, you know, in large part because of what Dolan told me. Uh, you know, Dolan, Dolan lied to me, he gaslighted me, and got the clock ticking in terms of the statute of limitations. So since 2017, I've been working to try to hold Dolan accountable and help the other survivors of the Catholic sex abuse crisis. One of the things that I've been doing is, well, so in 2018, I was subjected to a smear campaign by the Archdiocese of St. Louis. They were trying to discredit me and did so through a rumor campaign at my parish, Mary Queen of Peace, and also in a piece in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in which I came forward, where essentially they told me, they accused me of lying, telling the people of St. Louis that my story changed multiple times. So in 2018, I went to Bishop Rick Sticka, who I knew and who seemed to be sympathetic to survivors. He seemed like a good guy, at least in terms of his Twitter persona. Sticka seemed like a good guy. So I contacted him for help, basically asking him, A, could he try to persuade the Archdiocese of St. Louis to call off the dogs and end the smear campaign so my parish would stop shunning me and my kids would stop shunning me, and B, could he help persuade them to help me? That turned out to, to be a huge mistake. Sticka was... Sticka's loyalty, first and foremost, is to the Catholic Church, and he basically just pumped me for information and ended up doing nothing. He, it turns out, I didn't realize this at the time and didn't realize it until later, Sticka knew all the players in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Uh, when Dolan left the Archdiocese of St. Louis, uh, Sticka was the person who took over for Dolan at the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Sticka, Bishop Rick Sticka, now of Knoxville, succeeded Timothy Dolan as the vicar for priests for the Archdiocese of St. Louis.
but I didn't. At the time, I wasn't aware that Sticka was blindly loyal to the Archdiocese of St. Louis into the, into the church. He seemed like a guy who was ready and willing to help. So I went to Sticka for help and asked him if he could help me with trying to get help from the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So that gave me some, some exposure to and some familiarity with Bishop Rick Sticka. As a result, when in 2021, I started seeing stories about Bishop Sticka in the Diocese of Knoxville in stories published by J.D. Flynn of Pillar Catholic, I started contacting people I knew and people who were from Knoxville, Tennessee, asking or offering them, offering to help, basically letting them know that I knew about the Catholic sex abuse crisis, I knew about how things tended to work, and I had personal experience with Bishop Rick Sticka. So I've been involved in, exposed to what's been going on in Knoxville since March or April of 20 or 20, 2021. Working to expose Bishop Sticka, help people understand who he is and what he is and what exactly he and the Catholic Church are capable of. Which is, which is how I end up here at St. Louis University involved in this case of Bishop Sticka and the seminarian Wojciech Subcheck. One thing I want to make sure that people understand, based on my experience with Bishop Rick Sticka, is that if you have been gaslighted, manipulated, tormented, terrorized by Bishop Rick Sticka, if not abused by Bishop Rick Sticka, you should understand that you are not alone. I have also endured abuse at the hands of Bishop Rick Sticka. Gaslighting, manipulation, and worse. And I want people to understand that Bishop Sticka, Bishop Rick Sticka is a is a is a bad guy. He psychologically abused me, manipulated me, and I'm not at all surprised. I absolutely believe the stories that are coming out of Knoxville 
tales of Darvo being committed against the victim of the rape perpetrated against the employee of the cathedral of Knoxville, of the diocese of Knoxville. Darvo being distract, attack, and reverse the victim and offender. Darvo is a very common tactic employed by abusers and their enablers, people like Bishop Ricksticka, to try to discredit survivors. What's worse about what you'll read and what's come out of the Diocese of Knoxville are discussions of and possible explanations for the Catholic sex abuse crisis. I'm referring to line 107 of the lawsuit filed against Bishop Ricksticka one month ago. Line 107, as a survivor of the Catholic sex abuse crisis, I find to be absolutely stunning because it helps to explain the entirety of the Catholic sex abuse crisis. I'll let you read the the lawsuit for yourself and draw your own conclusions, but as I said, I have... I'm absolutely stunned and horrified by what I read in line 107. The justification not just for that particular attack and assault, but what to me sounds like a justification for the entire Catholic sex abuse crisis, a rationalization for the actions of all of those priests, what was done to me and to us in the 1970s and 1980s. Line 107 of the lawsuit against Bishop Ricksticka and the Diocese of Knoxville is absolutely devastating and incredibly troubling because of what it suggests the systemic enabling explanation for rationalization of the abuse of children. All of which goes to the point I raised earlier in terms of what exactly has changed. Now when I've talked to the press in St. Louis, it's obvious that they've been fed a narrative that the Catholic sex abuse crisis is old news. So their constant question to me is always, what's new? What's new? What's new? What's new? What's new? What is new that isn't 20 years old? The answer to that question at a high level, at the highest level, is that too much of what the Catholic Church has said is just that. It's just talk. It's meaningless, empty talk. These are 
laws that are put in place in order to placate and pacify the laity not to make or force systemic change. It's just PR. What the Catholic Church is doing is one big PR exercise. Now what about the concrete changes in terms of child protection? Uh, what, what in St. Louis is known as protecting God's children, what around the country is known as virtuous. Now, well, here's, here's the problem. While, while virtuous and protecting God's children are doing a good job of protecting children from grandmothers and grandfathers who want to come and read to the class, it's not doing anything about the people who abused me and all the others. Virtuous and protecting God's children have no impact on the priests, the seminarians, the acolytes, the crossing guards, the maintenance people. Those are the people who perpetrated the crimes against my friends and me at Immaculata. And protecting God's children has no power over them. As the case of the seminarian, Wojciech Subcheck, and Bishop Ricksticka in the Diocese of Knoxville make so clear. The thing you need to understand about the Dallas Charter and even Vos Estes Lux Mundi, the Pope's amendment to canon law, which lays out punishments for, bish for bishops and lays out guidelines for the treatment of survivors. The thing you need to understand about Vos Estes and canon law and the other aspects of canon law is that they only work if they're enforced and they're not being enforced. Again, as the reporting of J.D. Flynn of Pillar Catholic makes clear, and you should read J.D.'s reports, there are eight or so of them now, you can find them by, go by Googling Bishop Sticka Knoxville Pillar Catholic. The dirty little secret of the Catholic Church, the very present dirty little secret of the Catholic Church, is that all the guidelines, the Dallas Charter, Vosestis, things that came out of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, those guidelines only apply if the bishop decides to apply them. The bishop has sole discretion over whether a seminarian or priest should be removed from the seminary or the priesthood. Sure, they are surrounded by advisors and boards, but the dirty little secret of the Catholic Church and the Catholic sex abuse crisis, 
what the church and its enablers don't want you to know is that the bishops of the Catholic Church retain the sole authority in terms of personnel matters when it comes to seminarians and priests. I don't care what the documents say. I don't care what the spokespeople will say. That is the reality of the Catholic Church as the case of the seminarian and Bishop Rick of Knoxville demonstrates. And if you read the reporting by J.D. Flynn of Pillar Catholic, you will see where over and over and over again, Bishop Rick Sticka was given guidance by his lay advisors, by his review team, advice that he ignored, which is how a multi-accused seminarian like Wojciech Subcheck could have been thrown out of a Jesuit seminary in Europe, another seminary in the United States, accepted in the Diocese of Knoxville, despite having been thrown out, accepted as a provisional candidate in the Diocese of Knoxville, despite having been thrown out of those two other seminaries for sexual abuse, who then allegedly raped an employee of the Cathedral of Knoxville, who was then sent to another seminary where he again sexually assaulted people and was thrown out of that seminary for sexual assault. And who still hasn't been thrown out of the seminary, who still hasn't been returned to Poland. Instead, that seminarian has been sent to hidden in St. Louis harbored by the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the Jesuits of St. Louis University. What exactly has changed in the 20 years since Spotlight and the Dallas Charter? Very little. Which, as a survivor of the Catholic sex abuse crisis and a parent and a human being, is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying the indifference that's being shown by the Catholic Church, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, Bishop Rick Sticka, Archbishop Rick Mitchell Rosansky of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, the indifference, the callous arrogance and indifference that's being shown by the Catholic Church for the gay and LGBT community in St. Louis because as far as I understand the seminarians alleged victims have been gay men it's stunning what the Catholic Church the Archdiocese of St. Louis Archbishop Rosansky Bishop Sticka would do to the gay community of St. Louis the slew community in the community of St. Louis in general, that they would put a known multi-accused predator 
in the midst of that community and fail to warn that community. Now, I have contacts in the gay community in St. Louis and have done my best to warn people, but, you know, there's only, there's only so much that I can do. But I'm doing what I can. But it's stunning that I'm not getting any help from the Archdiocese of St. Louis. That the shuffling and hiding of multi-accused predators is continuing to this day so much for change what's new what's different about things the fact that that so little has changed that's what's new this isn't old news this isn't a story from 20 years ago this is a problem that's facing this the community of st louis university the gay community the community of st louis right now at this present moment and that's completely unacceptable you have other similarly horrible things. The collusion between the Diocese of Knoxville and the Archdiocese of St. Louis. The Archdiocese of St. Louis harboring a known multi-accused predator. Just from a standpoint of morality, that's absolutely stunning that that happened and that that is still happening. But the indifference of the federal government, the FBI, to what's happening is all the more stunning. I've gone to the FBI in St. Louis and have been completely underwhelmed by their reception to what they've been told about the sexual abuse of children at Immaculata. And this is even before the seminarian, the presence of the seminary in St. Louis. It's obvious that the incentives don't exist within the FBI to take the sexual abuse of women, children, gay men, and everyone seriously, which obviously is completely unacceptable. And the fact that this is a multi-state, multi-diocese collaboration, that the Archdiocese of St. Louis in Missouri is assisting the Bishop of the Diocese of Knoxville in Tennessee in an effort to hide and harbor a multi-accused predator sure sounds like a federal crime to me and brings words like RICO to mind. Then there's the general problem that St. Louis has become the de facto dumping ground for the Catholic Church. In Dittmer, Missouri, the operations of the servants of the paraclete, the Catholic order which takes care of and provides retirement homes for accused predator priests, those operations have moved from New Mexico to St. Louis, and I've actually been to Dittmer and have seen the facility, and what's stunning about that is that, yes, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it is not a secured facility. There's no fence. There's no barbed wire. You could walk right onto the property from the road. You can walk right off the property onto the road and get out of there. 
that is unacceptable. Why is the Catholic Church running a treatment facility, a de facto prison, for accused predators in St. Louis, just 15 or so minutes south of Six Flags, 45 minutes from St. Louis? Why is that allowed to happen in this day and age, knowing what we know about the propensities of abusers and how, you know, despite their age, they still have a tendency to abuse. I've also talked about Vos Estes Lux Mundi, which is the Pope's Bill of Rights for Survivors, which a lot of people will point to as an example of the Catholic Church's progress when it comes to the Catholic sex abuse crisis. The problem is that the Archdiocese of St. Louis is in violation of Vos Estes Lux Mundi and has been for nearly three years. And I've made more than 10 attempts to notify the Vatican and Pope Francis of that problem that the Archdiocese of St. Louis and now Archbishop Rosansky are ignoring the guidelines of Vos Estes Lux Mundi and nobody at the Vatican wants to hear about it. And I know from a contact through Cardinal Sean O'Malley, one of the Pope's closest advisors to the Pope, that at least one of my letters has been put on the desk of the Pope. So I can only assume that the office of the Pope knows what's going on and simply doesn't care in terms of the enforcement of Vos Estes Lux Mundi. I've also gone to my Archbishop, Archbishop Michel Rosansky, recently in the past couple months to try to meet. I I met with him at a prayer service, asked him to meet with me so I could go over the violations of Osestis Lux Mundi by the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Uh, Took him a couple months to get back to me, but ultimately Archbishop Brzezanski declined to meet with me. He couldn't be bothered to meet with me. The arrogance and indifference of the Catholic Church still 20 years after Spotlight, the Dallas Charter, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, the arrogance and indifference is both stunning and terrifying. Now, I think part of the problem, part of what is being hidden, is the existence of a program in the Archdiocese of St. Louis to manage if not protect known abusers dating back to the 1970s. I found a a document on the website of my parish, Mary Queen of Peace in Webster Groves, Missouri, which establishes the existence of that program to manage abusers. It's it's very obvious from that document that the Archdiocese of St. Louis, as of the 1970s, knew who the abusers were such that they could manage them and put them in slots in certain parishes in St. Louis, Immaculata, Mary Queen of Peace, and I suspect also St. Joe Manchester. Those were three of the parishes that were in the program. You know, why is the, why does the Archdiocese of St. Louis have such a problem with me? Well, in part, it's because I know about the existence of that program. I know the involvement of Cardinal Dolan and his exposure to that program, and I have no fear of speaking about that. But that program gives the lie to the idea that, the, that this is something that the Catholic Church only came to understand recently. Now, 
in the 1970s, the Catholic Church knew about the existence of abusers within their rank, knew enough to be able to put together this program to attempt to to manage, perhaps protect these abusers, sending them to certain parishes, I can only suspect because those parishes had certain powerful connected pastors. That, again, gives the lie to so much of the Catholic sex abuse crisis, so much of the narrative. The narrative is just that. Finally, there's the problem of enabling. This is enabling that's been done by the press of St. Louis. KSDK, KMOV, KMOX. They know about my allegations and refuse to investigate them. What's worse is the involvement of law enforcement. The Archdiocese of St. Louis on multiple occasions has sicked law enforcement on me. The police of Shrewsbury and the police of Webster Groves have harassed me at the behest of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. What's worse is the involvement of the Attorneys General of Missouri. First Attorney General and now Senator, United States Senator, Josh Hawley, who was the Attorney General of the State of Missouri in 2019, and who put together what turned out to be a sham investigation of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I know because I desperately tried to give my testimony to, tell my story to, the team put together by then Missouri Attorney General, now U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, in the fall of 2019, uh, fall, fall of 2019, after the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, or no, 2018, it was the fall of 2018, after the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, that I contacted Missouri Attorney General, now U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, contacted his team multiple times, three times, I think, through their website, uh, ended up speaking to the lead investigator, basically begging them to to talk to me. Nobody on Attorney General now, Senator Josh Hawley's team, would talk to me, would take my testimony. They were not interested in what I had to say. And that was very difficult because I could tell them, essentially, you know, metaphorically speaking, where the bodies were buried. I could tell them what to look for and where. That was very frustrating. The same thing happened when Attorney General, now Senator Josh Hawley, went to Washington and was replaced by current Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. I did manage to force, uh, through threats to go to the press and other means, I did manage to get Eric Schmidt's team to talk to me and I think it was February 2019, only after having been harassed by a family member of First Assistant Attorney General Tom Albus, a family member of Albus attacked me on Twitter for being a survivor, questioned my story, which made it obvious to me, made it clear to me that I wasn't gonna get a fair shake from the Missouri Attorney General's office, which was the case. I ended up again forcing 
Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt's team to talk to me in July of 2019. Uh, and again, metaphorically speaking, told them where the bodies were buried in a presentation that I think went over quite well. So well that the investigation into the Archdiocese of St. Louis was killed within the next few days, if not weeks. Everything was wrapped up. Nothing was done to look into my allegations by current Missouri Attorney General and U.S. Senate candidate Eric Schmidt. Which brings me to something that I've been thinking about for a while and have been afraid to discuss, but I think I need to, which is politics in the U.S. Senate race for the state of Missouri. So I am a conservative, in large part because of what happened to me. I take evil seriously. I believe in Satan. I believe that conservatives tend to take evil more seriously and crime more seriously than do liberals and Democrats and progressives. I believe in Satan and that it's been my experience that Republicans and conservatives tend to share that view more closely than do liberals, progressives, and Democrats. So I tend to vote Republican. But obviously not over the past couple years. And what I've watched happen to the Republican Party and the conservative movement has been completely appalling. The former president, who I won't name because I believe he's a traitor and he doesn't believe, he doesn't deserve to be, to be named. He's driving a fundamental transformation of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. He's basically discrediting and destroying the conservative movement, which I find tragic. Some may not, but I find it tragic because I do believe that conservatives tend to take evil and crime more seriously. Obviously not lately, though. And in large part because of the former president and all the allegations against him. In order to square the circle, manage the cognitive dissonance resulting from the former president's multiple allegations of sexual assault, the Republican Party and the conservative movement, conservatives in the movement, have basically blown off the value of character, the importance of character, the difference between right and wrong. Something that I think is a fatal mistake and will damage, if not destroy, both the conservative movement and the Republican Party. And, and, and you're seeing that it worked not just in the U.S. political system with the former with the former president, but now you're seeing it in the state of Missouri, my own state of Missouri, when it comes to the U.S. Senate race. The leading candidate is Eric Greitens, who in the conservative media is portrayed as the former governor of the state of Missouri. In fact, Greitens is the disgraced former governor of the state of Missouri. Greitens resigned due to a sex scandal and a fundraising scandal. And while Greitens has maintained his innocence, why then did he resign? Why didn't he fight the allegations against him? 
and the fact that Eric Greitens, a person like Eric Greitens, a multi-accused abuser of women, a philandering blackmailer who's alleged to have tied up and photographed in order to blackmail his mistress and who is now alleged by his ex-wife to have abused her and their children. How in the world can that person, can a person like that be the leading candidate for the Republican side of the U.S. Senate race for the state of Missouri? How in the world can Senator Josh Hawley, a man who, when given the opportunity to help me and the other survivors in the state of Missouri, how could he, who, who postures himself as, as a crusader against child pornography, most recently in the confirmation hearings for Judge Brown Jackson, how could Hawley, Senator Hawley, when given the chance to help me and us stage a sham investigation of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I'm sorry, but Senator Josh Hawley is a fraud. Eric Greitens is a fraud, a sham conservative. And I know from personal experience with Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and his investigation of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, I know that Eric Schmidt is a fraud, a paper tiger. I'm similarly unimpressed by the other Republican candidates for the U.S. Senate from the state of Missouri, which is why I am seriously exploring and considering and trying to put together an independent run for the U.S. Senate from the state of Missouri. What if the next senator from the state of Missouri and at least one of the senators from the state of Missouri was someone who was against crime, someone who cared about the welfare of women, children, and everyone? What if the next senator from the state of Missouri was someone who valued integrity who knew the difference between right and wrong, not a multi-accused philanderer and blackmailer of women, someone or an enabler of the Catholic Church. What if the next senator from the state of Missouri was a conservative who cared about right and wrong, who knew the difference between right and wrong, whose first priority is protecting women, children, and all from sexual abuse.